The Conservative Party of Canada is at a crossroads. Will the party embrace populism and capitalize on the broad frustrations that many Canadians have with the Trudeau government, or will they go down the safe establishment path and formula of presenting themselves as a more disciplined and more moderate version of the Liberal Party of Canada? I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. So there's a couple of things that we know, and that is that Canadians are feeling the effects of a big government led by the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau. They always think that they know best. This style of government includes the astronomical debt that Trudeau has raked up, a bureaucratic busybodies constantly getting in the way of jobs and growth, a growing nanny state where the government restricts our rights and freedoms at every turn. And all the while, it seems like Justin Trudeau is never really held accountable. He always finds a way to get away and give himself more power, whether it's through backroom deals like the one we saw with Jagmeet Singh, or just utilizing the various tools of government uh, to get away with his various scandals. So many Canadians are left wondering, what is the alternative? Could there be an opportunity here for the Conservative Party of Canada? Do conservatives embrace populism or do they look down their noses at it like so many in the establishment class do? Well, my guest today on the Candace Malcolm Show is Ben Woodfinden. Ben is a writer and contributor to the National Post and to Hub. The Hub, his recent article, he argues that it's time for the conservatives to embrace populism. Ben is also working on a PhD over at McGill University. And it is great to have you on the program, Ben. And thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. So we, I've never had you on the show before, but I uh, have been reading uh, and enjoying your work in various publications for a long time. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in sort of public policy and writing in various newspapers? Sure. So, yeah. So uh, as you said, so I'm finishing a PhD right now at McGill. Um, doing a PhD is kind of, I won't bore your listeners with the details, but basically on um, on executive power in the Westminster system is the really boring version of it. Um, so I do that, you know, it's kind of like my day job, so to speak. Uh, but I do a fair bit of, um, I, never really, I never really know what to describe myself as exactly. I do some you know, writing, commentary on the side. Um, I write pretty regularly places like the National Post. Um, and what's, what's uh, people always assume I kind of have a, a kind of a hyper-partisan background, uh, and I really don't. I've actually never formally worked um, for the Conservative Party or anything like that. Um, I kind of see my role in in the kind of the movement more broadly in that kind of more small C sense. Um, you know, I don't hide my political leanings. Um, you know, people in the academic world certainly are aware of my political leanings, unfortunately, sometimes. But um, I, uh, yeah, I kind of see myself as a kind of um, uh, a kind of small C voice that tries to kind of, you know, offer nudges and prompts and kind of the way the part on directions I think the party should take. Um, you know, I don't really, I don't really know if there's a kind of, uh, I would just call myself a conservative. I don't know if there's a kind of, uh, type of conservative I would necessarily kind of, uh, frame myself as, um, I do, I do kind of, um, uh, you know, some of the, some of the kind of broader shifts we've seen in the last couple of years, you know, not just in Canada, but, you know, in the U S and the UK, um, towards a kind of more, what I like to call kind of like a blue collar conservatism. Uh, I think I'm very kind of uh, sympathetic towards that. And I kind of think that's, I think that's happening, whether people like it or not, that's the direction it's going uh, anyway. Um, but I also think that's, a, it's a good thing that we're going in that direction and kind of some of the work conservatives need to be doing over the next few years is kind of figuring out how to kind of, um, how to put meat, meat on those bones and how to kind of really flesh some kind of good, good policy ideas and kind of a good, 
um, a good substantive agenda around uh, that kind of shift as well. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the need to sort of embrace uh, working class uh, values and populism. I, I, I don't really expect that talking to an academic from McGill University. Uh, so I, I do wonder what, uh, what brought you towards conservatism um, you know, it's, it's sort of rare, like you mentioned, uh, in academia and in in just sort of, you know, elite establishments like the one that you work at. So I'm, I'm just curious as to, uh, like, you were reluctant to say what kind of conservative you are, but what, what, what brought you to this uh, tradition of, of conservatism? Uh, good question. Um, you know, I was, I was a, uh, so I, so I grew I was born in the UK and I grew up in the UK and we moved, my family moved to Canada when I was about 15. Um, it's a, and moving, you know, I, uh, moving, moving countries when you're 15 is, it's not an easy time necessarily to move. Um, so I had a kind of strange high school experience when I was here. Uh, and I basically, you know, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't have called myself kind of, I wasn't interested in politics or anything like that when I was young. Um, but, you know, I basically just kind of had more time on my hands and doing a bit more reading, a bit more thinking when I was, when we moved here. And I just kind of, I kind of, of course, I would say this, you know, as someone doing a PhD, but I basically just kind of read my way into it. Um, you know, I, I did, I did the kind of very, the very unique, maybe strange thing of uh, I became I, uh, I grew up in a fairly non-religious family, and I, uh, I decided I became a Catholic. I converted when I was about uh, I was about twenty-one, and I was an undergrad. So there was definitely, and some of that was definitely, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a political move, but it was definitely um broader you know I'm, I'm fairly traditionalist in many ways uh and so there's definitely you know there's definitely something going on there um in terms of my kind of you know political evolution i think um so like i said i grew up in the uk um and i think prior to that my politics were um kind of quite um i was you know i was always kind of conservative but i was never uh i was never super comfortable with maybe some of the more um like free markety kind of conservatism um, but I kind of just went, you know, I kind of, I didn't really think about there being other ways to think about conservatism uh, until Brexit. Uh, and Brexit really kind of um, changed, but really opened my eyes to certain things. Um, so the kinds of, you know, I, I come from a fairly working class background in the UK. Um, so, um, so much of the kind of the, the, the discourse, the kind of discussion around Brexit, that, you know, before and then after, after the referendum, um, certain things really change uh, some things really changed for me and sort of opened my eyes um and the kind of um uh so I, I guess if there's one kind of broad broad thing that i changed my mind on that really does shape my politics now um it's the, the kind of the the way that the way that you know the, the the traditional defenders of the working class people on the left the way that they now think about politics and the way that they now think about defending the interests of working class people is just just totally divorced from the real lives of these people um, you know, I, you know, I, I sometimes get, um, uh, fairly or unfairly, I think fairly kind of labeled as kind of a pro union conservative. Uh, and I always like to clarify with people that, uh, you know, I'm very pro kind of labor unions and, uh, actual like trade unions. Um, but I'm not particularly pro, you know, public sector unions, which are a totally different animal just in terms of the incentives that motivate them. Um, the kinds of people that are actually members of the, you know, they're, if you're in a you know a public sector union, you're basically a member of like the professional class, right? Um, and so think like like the Labour Party in the UK now. It's still you know a, a union party, um, but it's dominated by like public sector unions. So the kind of labour politics that they're into now is very much that kind of like professional managerial kind of urban um, London-based kind of politics. And 
Um, also, you know, while all these kind of bigger shifts were going on around Brexit and stuff like that, um, it just kind of so many of these doors, so many, so many new things just kind of became clear to me that um, I don't I don't want to say that I kind of found my own consciousness. That's a, that, I really like that kind of language. But um, I think kind of over these last couple of years, I've kind of come into my own kind of sense of, you know, where I'm from, how it how it fits into the world. And, um, you know, so when I say I'm sympathetic with kind of like blue collar conservative shifts, you know, as partially kind of like self-motivated that's kind of broadly speaking how i kind of see my background and see where i'm from so um yeah and you know there's a some of this is economic stuff some of this obviously overlaps with like uh deeper kind of cultural questions questions about respect and dignity for people um but yeah i think so i yeah it's a it's a long way of kind of explaining how i got here but um if there was a single kind of catalyst for my kind of shift in politics it was probably uh brexit and what happened in the years uh following that it's so interesting. I, I could I could do a whole show, and I probably should one day on uh, the number of conservatives that I know have who have converted to Catholicism just personally, either uh, from from like an atheist background or you know maybe just like a um, Anglican Christian sort of background, uh, where they they they've sort of feel the the need to go towards something even more traditional and more steeped in the in the actual. Uh, teachings of the Bible and not just sort of the latest politics around them all. But we'll save that for another day. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the the distinction between uh, public sector unions and private sector unions, because I, I feel like this is a uh, conflict for the NDP. I mean, we saw the big merger or the agreement or the coalition, the pact uh, between Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. And, you know, right in their priorities, it talked about um, unions. Uh, but you could tell that they were talking about public uh, public sector unions because they're talking about sick days and perks like it wasn't it wasn't so much uh we're going to fight for the interests of the working man it was more like we're going to fight for the entitlements of the government class and the managerial class and it's a good segue because i know you wrote this great essay over in the hub where you talked about how uh pierre uh polyev or whoever is going to lead the next conservative party um th th there's a sort of winning strategy baked into a speech that pierre polyev gave about the elite gatekeepers and so i'm hoping you can sort of expand on that a little bit what do you mean by elite gatekeepers or what did pierre polyev mean by them and how is this a winning strategy for conservatives Sure. So, yeah, so when I wrote that essay, I had in mind, uh, so Polyev gave a, um, a speech on the floor of the House of Commons sometime, I think I think it was last spring, I have to go look, but um, he called the speech the gatekeepers. And, you know, Polyev has this kind of, um, uh, uh, he has a certain kind of, he has a very distinct kind of style, right? He's kind of mastered his own, his own approach. And it was a very kind of Polyevish uh, speech where he, uh, he went after basically, you know, he starts going after kind of, NIMBYs that basically blocked an expansion of Billy Bishop uh, to the airport in downtown uh, Toronto. Um, and he basically uses it to show basically how kind of um, all sorts of different, um, these elite, elite gatekeepers are, are basically kind of, uh, you know, holding back ordinary Canadians. And it's not, um, you know, the, uh, the, it's a perfect, it's a very kind of, in many ways, it's a very kind of, um, uh, it's not a very dangerous or like dark speech, I think, like, uh, you know, everyone, some people, you know, they hear the word, the word populism, they think, you know, this kind of evil, scary, you know, demonizing rhetoric. Um, but the kind of populism he was kind of channeling there, I think, is a very kind of healthy, uh, healthy populism. Um, and his argument is, you know, he's making essentially kind of an economic argument, right? You have these ordinary Canadians, 
um, who are being held back by these various kind of bureaucratic, um, not always bureaucratic, but you know, whether it's kind of big corporate interests or big government interests or like or the, the wedding of the two, which happens so often. Um, it's how these kinds of people are, you know, preventing, he, he looks at things like, uh, like housing is the most obvious one. Um, and I think, and so my argument in the piece, but there's, there's some real potential for this kind of message for him to build, a, for him to kind of simultaneously kind of be, uh, be authentically himself. He doesn't have to pretend to be something he isn't, which, you know, I think that was the, as I said in the essay, that uh, if there was one lesson to take from uh, from Aaron O'Toole's leadership, it's that um, you can't run, you know, you the you can, tr you can try that pivot, you know, that run as one thing for leader and then try and pivot towards something else. Um, it's unlikely to work, right? Because you kind of stuck caught between a rock and a hard place once you do. Um, O'Toole did this, O'Toole, O'Toole was still kind of, you know, during the election was still attacked um, as being kind of like far right, which is, you know, it's farcical to think about, but um, uh, he simultaneously, some of those attacks would stick precisely because, you know, there were clips of him that they could use to try and, that the liberals could use to try and make him out to be one thing. Uh, but then precisely because he wasn't like that, and precisely because he pivoted to this completely, you know, done a complete 180, um, O'Toole, you know, he, he, he lost, he basically lost trust with, um, with the base, right, with, with the people that elected him. Um, and so we had, and so we had what was, you could basically describe as an authenticity problem by the end of it. Um, if Pierre, if Polyev was to run on this kind of thing, I don't think he has that problem precisely because he can, uh, I think this kind of message is appealing to enough of the kind of conservative base um, that will still, you know, resonate with the base. Uh, but where I really think there's kind of potential for this kind of message is it really has um, growth potential beyond just kind of traditional, uh, traditional Tory voters. Um, one thing that I don't want to tease it too much in here, but I'm working on another piece right now that I'm hoping to expand on the, this point a bit. Um, but the kinds of, uh, so the, if, if, if he goes for this kind of, this anti-gatekeepers coalition that I'm kind of suggesting he should, um, you know, it's in some sense, it's a, it's a, it'll be a populist um, movement, a populist coalition. Uh, but the people I think he should target aren't necessarily what you might think of as kind of the traditional populist voters, right? You know, when we think about places like the UK and the US, you know, we're thinking about kind of like Rust Belt, uh, you know, maybe rural, like older uh, people, uh, that these are the kind of prime populist voters. And I'm actually not so sure that that's the people he should be targeting with this message so much. Um, I think the kind of people that will be most uh, open to what he's saying are quite likely to be younger Canadians. It's quite likely to be a fairly kind of um, diverse, uh, like ethnically quite a diverse set of people. Um, the kind, I'm thinking kind of like the four nation kind of coalition. Um, these are the like these are people you know they're they're younger, um, you know they're struggling. You know the cost of living is kind of you know threatening to swamp them. Uh, they can't afford. They can't buy a house. They've been priced out of the housing market. Um, you know, they get told by by boomers that, you know, kind of you know, wealthy to do boomers that, um, you know, if you can't afford gas on your car, just go oh, just 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 buy an electric vehicle as if it's that easy. Um, these so these are the kind of people I think uh, Polyev could, could really resonate with. Um, and so it's not necessarily it's a kind of it's a fairly you might want to call it like an, 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 a, a, not an unorthodox coalition. Um, but I think it's one that has real potential, kind of real formidable electoral potential for him. And one that, uh, especially where you think about some of these voters live, places like the GTA and the 905, um, if he could find a way to successfully kind of mobilize his coalition, it, it could it could propel him to government and a you know, big kind of resounding government. So, um, you know, it's not, it's, 
it would be easier. It's going to be if if Polyev wins, he's going to get painted as you know the next Trump, the next Johnson. Um, and so many of these comparisons are so silly uh, when when they're made by you know like media and people like that. But um, in, in many ways, I think if when people if people try and do that to him. Um, they're really going to kind of miss the miss what's going on. They might be quite shocked. You know, they might wake up in twenty twenty five, whenever the next election is going to be now, um, and discover that kind of a, a coalition of people that they really weren't expecting uh, might propel them to victory. One of the interesting things that came out of the trucker convoy, I, I saw a poll that showed that the people who were the most sympathetic to the cause of the truckers were young Canadians, people under the age of thirty. Uh, which 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 seems a little counterintuitive, but I think that the way that you draw out that that sort of coalition of people who, I, I mean, if you think about the last two years and what we've lost, uh, you know, it's, it's it's hard for all of us. But I, I think that the people that were hit the hardest are those who are in school, who are young, who are out there, you know, looking to live a life and get experiences and make friends and date and all this kind of stuff. And so much of that was restricted that I, I don't think we've really properly calibrated just how much anger and resentment there is among um, that group of people. I want to chat a little bit more about uh, this aspect that you're talking about with uh, Aaron O'Toole and the authenticity issue. I, I completely agree with your analysis. And I think that that, that was certainly one of his many, many problems. It, it seems like the sort of tried and true strategy for conservatives is to appeal to the base, the you know provide the red meat during the uh, selection period where they're picking a new leader, and then sort of moderate and appeal more to centrist voters during the general election. It didn't work for Andrew Scheer. It didn't work for Aaron O'Toole. Do you think conservatives will learn this lesson? Uh, do you think that, uh, that 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 they will select a leader? based on this or or do you think that they're doomed to continue to make this mistake uh i i think um i think they're gonna i don't know if they're gonna learn all the right lessons but i think um you know i would you know where it's still you know we're recording this in in march so you know who knows what's going to happen in the next six months but um i still think this race is very much polyevs to lose i'd still be quite surprised if anyone else wins um i do have to i you know it's it is quite um it's, it's, it's quite funny watching uh, some of the media coverage of the race from non-conservatives, um, the people who they think, um, you know, there's, 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 there's nothing more, uh, uh, I mean, I find that amusing, but also quite frustrating to get kind of, you know, this is who the conservative should, uh, should pick from people that are never, ever, ever going to vote conservative, right? Um, and I always think it's kind of like, um, it's the kind of, it's atheists giving advice to the church, right? Like, well, I'm never ever, you know, I don't believe in God and I'm never, ever, ever going to go to church. But if only the Catholic church would become a bit more liberal on all these things. Well, you know, I'd never become Catholic, but maybe I would just, you know, maybe I respect the church a bit more. And so much of that advice feels like that to me. You're getting, uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't, it just doesn't mean the conservative should only listen to, um, to, to, to conservatives. I'm not saying they shouldn't take outside advice. Um, but they should be very careful in some senses who they take that advice from. Um, people that you know, people that want a conservative party. Lots of these people that want the kind of you know the, old, the kind of liberal light candidate. They might you know they they think that that is the kind of um, you know they'll, they'll frame their arguments as like this is what the conservatives need to do to win. Um, but what they really mean is this is what the conservatives need to do so that they can be an opposition that I like a bit more, right? Um, and I, I, I think they, they have to avoid that kind of, uh, be very wary of that kind of advice. And, uh, I do, I do think this time around, I get the sense that the base in general is quite sick of, uh, is quite wary of that. They're quite sick of that. Um, 
where I do think the conservatives need to learn, uh, you know, where I think they need to do some real thinking, where I think they need to kind of, um, you know, do some serious kind of uh, work and thinking for themselves is, um, you know, we try, we treat, uh, we, we treat, we tr you know, we treat, we treat people in different parts of the country as kind of the same. If you're in Alberta, you must be this way. If you're a Quebec, you must be this way. If you're rural, you must be this way. If you're urban, you must be this way. Um, and I don't think, I think it's, it's such a kind of simplistic way of looking at it. Um, one of the things I kind of think uh, the conservatives would benefit, would, could do well, would benefit from, uh, and something where I think Polyev especially has potential to resonate, um, is think about the kinds of people that, um, that live in these kind of suburban ridings in Toronto where like realistically they're going to have to do, have some breakthroughs if they're ever going to form government again. Um, you know, there's, the, the suburbs of Toronto are the most kind of diverse place, probably uh, maybe one of the most diverse places in the world. And I don't just mean in terms of kind of like different immigrant communities. I mean, in terms of kind of, in terms of like, like class background as well, right? The idea that there's a single kind of suburban voter um, is silly, right? There are rich suburban people, there are poor suburban people, there are younger suburban people, there are older suburban people. And the idea that all these people will have the exact same kind of, like there's a, there's a, there's a way to kind of please all those people as if they have kind of the same priorities and preferences. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's never going to happen. Um, and the conservatives are never, you know, the, um, too often it feels like um, conservatives, they either, uh, they either don't want to expand the base at all or they want to be liked by everyone. Um, they don't need to be liked by everyone, right? Um, you're never going to please everyone. Um, so what, what I think they need to do is be looking at um, uh, the kinds of people I'm talking about, this kind of um, younger, more, mille more millennial, not entirely millennial, but more millennial, um, young, younger um, group of people that you know live in places like the GTA, uh, figure out the kinds of things that motivate those kind of kinds of voters uh, and tap into that. Um, and I think what people will be shocked to learn is that you know people, um, my kind of if whenever I go to places like uh, I was in I was in. Toronto a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I was in a place called, I was in Vaughan, so like Northern, Northern GTA. Uh, and something that amazes me when you live somewhere like that, um, you know, I live in, uh, so I live in Ottawa, and I live in a fairly, I live downtown Ottawa, so I, like, I live in a fairly kind of bougie, urban kind of area. Uh, and I can, I can walk, basically, most, I can walk to the grocery store, I can walk to the gym. Um, so I have a car, but I don't use it all that much. Um, but if you live somewhere like Vaughan, like you, you drive everywhere, right? That's just kind of how those places are built. Um, and so if you're going to appeal to people like that, it's funny how as much as kind of urban trendy people think that, you know, suburbs are full of people like them, um, in many ways, like, like people that live in kind of car, car, car oriented suburbs, places like that, um, they are, they live different lives to kind of urban, urban people, urban progressives, especially. Right. Um, and I think conservatives, if they actually tried to kind of figure out, um, a message that can resonate specifically with those kinds of people. I don't actually think that, um, I don't actually think that should be that difficult. I think kind of conservative, small C conservative values should appeal to those people quite easily. It's just a matter of kind of selling that, getting through to those people and actually selling them that. Well, and getting in front of the message so that you're presenting yourself to the Canadian public and not letting the liberals define you. And, you know, it's interesting because the type of coalition that you talked about, look back at the 2011 uh, electoral map and you'll see that Stephen Harper uh, like the GTA is all blue it's it's, it's really remarkable um, how many of those seats went to the conservatives in 2011 so 
you know, it's, it's, it, I, I know so many people say, look, the Harper Coalition's dead and you can't rerun on something that you used a decade ago, but you're clearly channeling something um, that, that, was, that was in that platform, the, the, the idea of you know, simplistic policies that appeal and actually help people in those parts of the country, uh, I think is great advice. Uh, ben, I want to sort of switch gears here because I, you, know, you mentioned that you're doing your PhD and you're studying the Westminster system of government. I get so many people e- emailing me and messaging me asking how it's possible uh, for the type of sort of power grab or solidification coalition, whatever you want to call it, uh, that we saw between the NDP and the Trudeau liberals. People, people ask, you know, is, is, isn't our system set up um, to sort of protect against these post-election uh, jockeying of uh, coalitions? But uh, you, you're sort of the expert on this topic. So I want to get your thoughts on that and maybe just more broadly uh, whether you think it's a good strategy, what uh, Trudeau and Singh have done here. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be the kind of the, the pedant here that kind of pleases no one with an answer. But um, uh, yeah, I, like, you know, this so much of the kind of silly online discussion over this is, you know, someone's calling it a coalition. And then, you know, the Aaron Wearies of the world saying, well, that's a, not that's not the correct word. And that kind of like back and forth over terms. Um, you know, I, th- I think this is probably very if, if, you know, the conservatives, you know, will be are publicly as they should criticizing the agreement. Um, you know, you know, they probably stand to benefit from this agreement in a couple of years, um, given just given, you know, who they can now run against. Um, uh, the, technically, what's so what's what's actually being uh, what's been agreed here is what's called a confidence and supply agreement, which is a fairly kind of common practice in uh, Westminster systems. Um, there's nothing technically kind of uh, so both parties have signed, uh, agreed to this uh, confidence and supply agreement. Um, it's not formal legislation or anything like that. Um, so, you know, if one of the parties chooses to break it, they're not breaking the law or anything like that. And there's no legislation doesn't have to be repealed to, to remove it. Um, so it's it's more of a kind of a gentleman's agreement um, that they'll both promise to keep. But uh, it could be, you know, that the NDP could withdraw support at any time if they wanted to. Uh, and more, more likely, the Liberals could, you know, if they see an opportunity, um, they could just break the agreement. Um, that happened a couple of years ago in uh, British Columbia when the um, the NDP, the the then uh, the then minority NDP government that was backed by the Greens, but had basically all of these agreements with um, with the Green Party, and just basically, uh, uh, I might be getting some of the details on this slightly wrong, but uh, they basically you know broke the agreement, kind of betrayed the Greens almost, and then they won a majority. So. Um, you know that it's this doesn't guarantee that the government lasts till 2025 um but into but i have to say the people i'm most surprised but the, the 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 move makes sense for the liberals because it you know it basically just gives them a close to a free hand as they're going to get in this parliament right it allows them to minimize scru- to avoid scrutiny uh the place to really watch where this is uh, how this is going to shake out is going to be in the committees um so uh, in if you go and read the actual uh, agreement that they published uh, publicly um, they have a they have a, uh, a mention of the um, how this is going to work in terms of committee work, and there's some very kind of vague language in there about both parties will agree to not have any kind of um, unnecessary obstructions in committees. Uh, but you, you know the Liberals have not got a good track record of respecting committee work, so um, you know they'll probably just use this as an excuse to kind of sideswipe any kind of like serious uh, scrutiny in, part, in committees, which which uh, worries me a bit. Um, but in terms of what the NDP gained from this, I just don't, um, you know, technically they'll gain some, 
you know, some of their policy priorities, you know, pharmacare, dental care, all this kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, there's nothing to actually force liberals to do this. Um, and, you know, I, if I was betting, I don't think we'll actually have, you know, dental care or pharmacare two years from now, just based on um, how the liberal government tends to operate. We'll have some sort of, you know, promise to have it down the road, we'll have a, a, like a white paper or something. Um, but the NDP are the party that I just don't understand. You know, the, 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 traditional, the traditional kind of self-understanding of the NDP has been, uh, you know, the conscience of parliament. Um, so, you know, whether you, you know, I'm not a member of the NDP, but, um, you know, they were traditionally thought of themselves as kind of the principled conscience in parliament that held the government to account. Um, you know, this is just kind of the, the betrayal of that almost, right? Um, uh, you know, Singh, I don't know if Singh, I, I confess, I think Singh is kind of a, um, uh, quite far from the kind of, he's, he's, his politics seem quite different from uh, the politics that, you know, used to define that party 30, 40 years ago, if you ask me. Um, he seems more interested in uh, kind of being, you know, you know, more interested in being recognized by people like AOC in the U.S., um, and kind of you know playing playing uh, playing gay online games and stuff with American progressives, uh, then they actually seems in kind of defending the interests of kind of working class Canadians. Um, so again, I think there's a real um, you know traditionally the Conservatives have done well when uh, when the when the NDP are stronger, right? When it splits the kind of left wing vote, um, I kind of think because there's an there might be an opportunity here for the Conservatives to really try and go after some of those. Um, kind of working class votes that um, that might feel kind of increasingly kind of adrift and betrayed by the the modern NDP, right? This kind of uh, this working class party that's more of a kind of urban progressive public sector union party now. Um, there's opportunities for the Conservatives there. I think if they if they're smart that they can exploit. Um, and just just one more quick thing before I uh, just to go back to something for a second. Um, I think the so uh, there's something to this. Um, this idea that you know you um, the the Harper coalition the Harper the Harper recipe can't just be redone right times have changed and I think that's definitely true. Um, my point about kind of say thinking about the suburbs as themselves very diverse places in all sorts of ways is that you could still rebuild that kind of Harper coalition so to speak in terms of kind of the seats that you're winning, uh, but you might be able that I think the kind of the path for the Conservatives to do that especially under someone like Polyev, um, it might be with different people. Right. Um, it doesn't you can win those ridings and win them in very different ways. Um, and that's that's so instead of thinking of um, kind of because if, if I had a if I have a criticism of maybe someone like Shear, um, Shear's Shear's the 20 was it in the 2019 election um, that really did feel like a kind of rehash of Harperism. Right. It didn't really feel like it had been kind of much new thinking or fresh ideas plugged in there. Um, What's you, I think you can still kind of keep the broad kind of template for where you need to win uh, and then infuse it with kind of new ideas, uh, new new efforts to reach different people, people that might not have been persuadable, reachable 10, 15 years ago. Uh, that, you know, the world's changed a lot in the last like 10 years, five years, let alone 10 years, right? So, um, yeah, I think that to, to bring it back to the, uh, the question of this, the NDP and liberal agreement, um, no, it's. Um, I think there's some. I think if the conservatives play their hand right here, there might be some real opportunities for them. Um, but they, but you know, it requires them playing their hand right to do that. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you that the uh, pact or the agreement is a good thing for the conservatives in a number of ways. It also gives them more time because I know during the 2021 election, Justin Trudeau said that 
uh, in minority governments, only tend to last 18 months or so. And so there was sort of this imperative, okay, we need to be ready for the next election. It could happen as soon as late 2022. Well, this sort of it says, okay, we can, conservatives, you can take your time in selecting the right leader, giving that leader time to sort of set the stage with, with your agenda. Just final question for you, because I, I don't mean to pick on Aaron O'Toole. I think he had a tough uh, job that, that he was tasked with. Uh, one of the things early on he said was that he really did want to appeal to those working class voters and that he wanted that to be like I remember in an early interview he was asked if, if what, what he thought about the comparisons with him to Trump because obviously like you said they're kind of lazy but they're always going to come for any conservative leader and 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 he he didn't like he didn't push that away he, he actually said look there's a lot of things that Trump did that I want to replicate something along those lines um whereas with his with his um the way that he ran and his policies and his set of uh, priorities, I didn't see much that that really did appeal to to the working class. So I, I'm wondering if you could provide some like suggestions in terms of ideas, policies, uh, things that conservatives can do or say to uh, attract and keep more um, of these people that are disaffected by Jagmeet Singh and the NDP who don't feel like they have a home in the modern view, I don't, I don't even know, just as an aside, I don't know if the NDP is really going to survive. I mean, at this point, it seems like so many of the priorities that they have are mirrored with the liberals. It seems almost redundant to have two parties now. I see this as an outsider, so I don't, I don't know if there's, you know, I, I, I'm not speaking as an NDP member or voter, I've never been part of that party, but I, I can't imagine really what, what, what the purpose of having two. But it, yeah, if you could, if you could uh, maybe comment on the future of the NDP, and then also comment on what you think conservatives can do to capture this uh, voting block. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't, um, you know, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a member of the NDP. I, I don't understand what their kind of, the reason for their existence is anymore. Um, um, and you, sooner or later, you would think that that's, uh, you know, things that cannot go on forever don't go on forever. And so I, I won't suspect sooner or later that, um, that will something will something will happen there with them that will force them to kind of figure out who they are. Um, I don't think it's true that they don't have a constituency anymore. I think they do. The problem is that constituency is just not. Um, you know, the the NDPR more than anything else now a kind of party of kind of very urban, very progressive, um, you know, culturally very radical uh, people, right? And there, you know, there's 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 a constituency for that in certain places. Um, those are the kinds of people I think that the NDP that dominate kind of you know how the NDP think um, and you know who tends to vote for them now um, so I suspect they can survive as kind of a kind of whatever whatever you want to call that kind of party now um, but like you say you know what in many ways that makes them not all that different from the kind of modern liberal party um, in terms of kind of how I think the conservatives can kind of you know capitalize on some of this um, I think there's a couple of things. So I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put in a, a word, a defense here for, for Aaron O'Toole for a second. Um, I think some of the moves he made, especially early on uh, in his, uh, sort of just after he got elected, um, um, were, were in those the kinds of directions we're talking about here. And I think they were good. Um, I think the problem with O'Toole was that by the end of it, he tried, um, he tried to he put on so many different masks and faces and costumes to see if any of them would stick, right? Because um, he tried that one, he tried a couple other ones. Um, I think he, yeah, that, again, it goes back to that kind of authenticity problem. Uh, but I do think he was onto something with that. Um, and I would, you know, I would, and I would still, um, you know, I, when the, during the election, I wrote pretty, I wrote a, uh, positively about, 
um, the Conservative Party's platform they put out. Um, you know, I didn't like everything in it, and there was plenty of stuff I would have changed with it. Um, but I thought I actually thought there was some quite there was an attempt to do some kind of original um, new stuff in that platform, um, especially around kind of working class uh, and labor stuff. Um, some of the stuff that they championed around um, uh, some of the stuff to do with uh, uh, union, some of the stuff around unions, not all of it, some of the stuff around unions, I think was quite interesting. Um, certainly wouldn't have pleased everyone in the party. Um, he didn't, um, but I think there was, there was stuff to work with there. Um, one place where I think uh, federal conservatives could look um, is that, and there is a, there would be a role for the feds uh, in some of this, uh, is to go and look at some of the work that uh, Ontario, the Minister of, um, I forget his exact title, but the Minister of Labour in Ontario, Martin McNaughton, um, he's really managing to, car he's carving out a space right now on some of this stuff. Um, he's putting, you know, it's obviously there's jurisdictional issues here. So the feds, you know, they don't control kind of skills training and stuff like that um, uh, all that much. Uh, but, you know, McNaughton's done a lot of really, really good stuff around uh, skilled trades, around uh, reforming colleges to, you know, make them more kind of suited for that kind of stuff. Uh, they've done some good stuff recently on kind of like gig work, you know, the future of work and the gig economy. Um, and I think that is exactly the kind of, uh, when I say that the Conservatives need to be reaching kind of new people, younger people, um, you know, gig, gig work, so to speak, I think is for lots of people, that is the future. Uh, and there's, there's bad, there's downsides to that and there's good sides to that, right? Um, I don't think it's all bad. Um, you know, it means you get to, some people really like it because, you know, they can, uh, jobs where they kind of get to choose their own hours, you know, they can work 100 hours one week and then, you know, 10 hours the next if they need to do something else. Um, so I think, you know, some people kind of like the kind of flexibility that comes with that kind of work. Um, but the biggest challenge for gig work, I think, is the kind of precarity of it, right? Um, you know, there's no kind of, um, it's harder to have kind of stability in that kind of work. It's harder to build kind of like long-term plans. Um, so some of the stuff that uh, McNaughton has been doing around uh, just kind of tweaking kind of uh, social security and stuff like that to make it a bit more kind of welcoming to gig work. Uh, I think there's good stuff to be done there. Um, and it, obviously, there's, again, there's jurisdictional issues here about what the feds can do. Uh, but there's definitely there's, there's there's definitely opportunities down there, and so federally, I think uh, looking to kind of the work that Norton is doing would be a uh, it would be one good thing they could do. Uh, but if there's a if, if there's a bigger kind of and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, some of the Brexit stuff, um, you know, part of what this is going to take is going to be uh, putting kind of like I say flesh on the bones, like a substantive policy agenda uh, that actually helps the kinds of people that you're trying to target in real real material ways. Um, but a bigger picture, part of this picture is a broader kind of cultural questions and cultural shifts. Um, so much, so much of the kind of, uh, so much of what I think is actually driving some of these shifts is there's a kind of, there's an economic and kind of like a material story you can tell yourself about it. But there's also the other side to the story is a kind of cultural story about the kinds of the changing values of kind of cultural elites versus kind of ordinary people, um, and so there's, and that is where I actually think there are some real, real opportunities for the Conservatives. Um, uh, you know, we've seen the, the Liberals and the NDP have both gone this direction, right? But there's a, there's a, real, there's a real kind of vacuum right now uh, that the Conservatives should fill um, on kind of what you might, what I would, you know, it, it, it would get painted by kind of like mainstream media as kind of like culture war, culture warrior, um, cultural conservatism. But what I would actually say is like a very moderate kind of mainstream cultural conservatism that I think actually is a kind of the kind of the kinds of cultural values that are shared by most like this majority of Canadians at least. Um, 
you know, I, I, I think about the kind of, um, you know, the, what happened with the flag last year, right? We had the flag at half mass for like, what, six months, just, just ludicrous, right? Um, and, you know, we basically got into that mess because, the, you know, the liberals did like what was a, you know, initially like a nice gesture, sure. Um, but, you know, it was just a performative gesture in the end, right? And they ended up getting themselves into this mess of, well, we can't raise the flag because that means... Uh, you know, we don't care about racism anymore. It was basically kind of like what it seemed like they, the kind of trap they got themselves into. Um, I think there's a real opportunity for conservatives to kind of reclaim, uh, become the kind of the patriotic party, um, become the party of kind of, you know, uh, the party that says, you know, Canada might not be a perfect country, but Canada is a good country and we should be proud uh, of this country, be proud, you know, the fact that um, people want to come here, the fact that you know, this is the kind of country where people uh, want to and, you know, should be able to lead and can lead free, good and free lives. Um, that kind of, you know, it used to be, you know, the, the the party of the flag in some ways used to be the liberals, right? In so many ways, they owned, you know, they owned the flag, they owned all the kind of hallmarks or national identity, the charter, um, constitution, healthcare, you name it, right? Like the liberals kind of owned these kind of symbols of, you know, what it meant to be Canadian. But as kind of as the kind of as kind of cultural elite, as elites kind of move in this kind of increasingly kind of uh, more radical kind of cult direction culturally, where they like, you know, they reject um, you know Canada become you know it's hard. Some of these people think of Canada as this kind of illegitimate um, you know settler colonialist state um, that leaves so much kind of cultural space right for uh, for normal people um, that, are, that, that fits kind of what most normal people kind of think about. Um, and that is something I think the conservatives really need to kind of figure out how to um, how to take advantage of. Uh, I don't think they do. I don't think they need to become like radical culture warriors, um, even though that's how they'll get painted if they if they do anything like this. Um, I think they just need to become kind of the unabashed party of kind of uh, Canadian values, so to speak. Um, and twenty years ago, I don't know if they necessarily would have been able to get away with doing that because I think the Liberal Party of twenty years ago was much more kind of culturally moderate in that sense. Uh, now I'm not so sure. Um, and so if the conservatives, so, um, you know, it sounds kind of maybe counterintuitive, but I think one way to reach some of these new voters is precisely to become that new, um, I wrote in the recent National Post column that um, there's something to this kind of, this, this, uh, this classic kind of, you know, the conservatives need to moderate uh, in order to win. Um, I think that's true. The problem is they let all the wrong people define what it means for them to moderate and become moderate. On they need to, they need to define for themselves what it means to be moderate. And something like this is a classic, perfect example of what it would mean to be a kind of in, define. We're the moderate party in in your own image, right? You know, we are the party of Canadian values. We're the party of the flag. We're the party that believes in this country. Um, there, there is so much ground for them to kind of carve out there. And you know, so I'm not, I'm not a strategist, right? I, I don't understand the kind of the nitty gritties of exactly how you would, you know, create messaging and um, how you, how exactly you would go about doing that. But um, I think that if there was one way to kind of really kind of accelerate some of these shifts uh, and really try and take advantage of them, uh, that's, that would be the route to go down for them. Well, we, ha we have a prime minister who says not, not just that Canada is a country that was formed on genocide, um, but he says that Canada is actively committing genocide. He, he agreed with the 2017 recommendations of the Missing and Murdered Aboriginal uh, Women report, which was a 
a report that was necessary. However, the people who, who put it together were radically left-wing. Um, part of their recommendations w was that it, it admit, admitting that a genocide is still going on today. And uh, Trudeau said that he agreed with that. Um, so, so, so talk about the need for a moderate uh, just to counter our crazy, insane, woke, uh, leftist sort of mindset. And I, I think that's right. Anecdotally, uh, last year at Canada Day, you know, amidst all of the sort of consternation about Canada and this this sort of horrible, irreconcilable past, uh, cancel Canada Day movements, uh, toppling statues, uh, you know, the, the, the number of people who were out on the streets on Canada Day celebrating unabashedly, uh, you know, the, 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 the horns honking all night, the fireworks going on. Um, I, I don't know what it was like in Ottawa, but in Toronto, it was like an absolute party and uh, part, part of that might have been just that people were cooped up from covid for too long and they were finally able to go out at that time but really i, I saw a big outpouring of uh, sort of canadian and national nationalistic or patriotic uh impulse there and then we saw it again during the freedom convoy so i, I think i think you're definitely right i think there's something to that that the liberals have sort of abandoned their traditional kind of base as being the party of canada and all these symbols that they themselves brought in um, that they're now apparently ashamed of and don't want anything to do with and, and can't bring themselves to uh, promote. So I, I, I think that's great. I think um, I ho hopefully, Ben, the uh, conservatives listened to the advice that you're giving and uh, appreciate your time today. Appreciate your um, writing that we can find uh, in the Hub and the National Post. So thank you so much for joining us. That's uh, Ben Woodfiden and uh, I'm Kenneth Malcolm. This is The Kenneth Malcolm Show.